What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, Cramping Science Research with Dr. Sandra Folks Godak coming back on the podcast because last time we crammed so much in one hour that we didn't even get to talk about the research. So again, if there's anything cramping related you want to know or heat illness related you want to know, then either Dr. Kevin Miller that we talked to just recently or Dr. Sandra Folks Godek who we're talking to today is going to be the go-to authority. They're they're going to know the answer or be able to point you in the right direction. And if they don't know it, then it probably doesn't exist. So I've got my friend Mike McKinney doing most of the questioning here, and he's been uh, heading up this series, doing a fantastic job. This is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science research. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science research. So Mike and Sandy, welcome back to the podcast. You bet. So um, just get everybody caught up. I think if they uh, go back and listen to the last podcast, they um, will kind of find that we left off talking about um, where is research taking us. And so we kind of looked at um, talking with Dr. Kevin uh, Miller about maybe the limitations of our research was taking us from the neurological and just hardcore muscle physiology side of things. But um, I was really excited for this because now we have all this new research that (laughs) I'm selfishly wanting to listen to as well. I'd probably be watching this podcast if I wasn't um, a part of it. But I guess let's... um, I say, let's just do like a, a quick review of what you've been noticing. I think we left off on the importance of chloride um, or the growing importance of chloride. So maybe just a very brief recap of why chloride is important. And let's kind of segue into maybe the results of your recent research. With I'm very much anticipating hearing what you have, have to say there. Um, the chloride, I think it's interesting because I think people focus sometimes on the this, sweat this sodium and sweat chloride. Um, and I've, you know, I've done research looking at, um, you know, crampers versus people who don't cramp and whether or not their sweat sodium and sweat chloride are higher. And they, they really aren't. So that kind of is confusing, I think, because, and I think Kevin has found the same, the same stuff where you don't really find any difference, um, in their, their sweat chloride, sweat sodium. You don't find any difference in, um, in really anything that I've looked at in the field. Where we collect uh, we collect blood samples before and after guys are cramping. I've collected blood samples um, when somebody is cramping uh, on a day that they're cramping, and then coming come back and 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 do them like the next day when they're not cramping, and compare everything I can I can do um, you know in, in like my field lab, and you don't see any differences um, except blood chloride except blood chloride. You see hypochloremia in the guys when they are actively cramping um and you know that was something that was eye-opening for for me um because i didn't know what that you know i didn't know what that meant right um but i was seeing it consistently and not just not just um a significant difference in the lower blood chloride while the guys are actively cramping but really a clinical difference so if you um, look at you know, normal blood sodium should be between 135 and 145, um, normal blood chloride between about 100 and 108 or so. And you know I was seeing regularly blood chlorides uh, 98 or below and as low as like 92. So just clinically, um, they were hypochloremic. Wow. So, um, so with that, um, where is your research taking you now? I know you're excited to share this this whole process of um, what, what are you now noticing with, uh, I guess, this uh, 
this conversation. So we've spent a lot of time saying, hey, maybe basically Kevin's conclusions where it's complicated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know it's not one thing. I agree with that. Like it's definitely not one thing, but obviously right. we have um, the, the real, like what can we influence? So obviously there's some, uh, we kind of left off on the neurological side of things like reflex and central mediated and the central mediated responses, which are really difficult for your average AT to influence right. um, or any healthcare pro professional, not even AT necessarily, but metabolic, if this chloride is really starting to draw our attention maybe back to the metabolic side of things, um, what have you seen in your research to support that? Um, you know, anytime the players are um, underweight, so if they are um, in a hypohydrated state, you know, prior to a practice and, and they are in that state, particularly on consecutive days, that most likely, particularly in an athlete like a football player, most likely um, indicates that they are have hypovolemic hyponatremia, which means that um, they're either in a combination of over drinking um, hypotonic fluids with losing too much salt in their sweat. Um, and anytime they're hypovolemic like that, it's an indication that they're hyponatremic as well. And if they're hyponatremic, low blood sodium, they're also hypochloremic mm -hmm. um, because blood sodium and chloride go together. So, um, you know, my guess is that, um, you know, even if you didn't, you're not able to take blood samples, um, those players that are underweight, and we've talked about that, right? One of the best clinical ways to kind of monitor your players during preseason is see whether or not they are um, regaining their weight prior to the next practice. And if they're not, um, it's probably not just the sodium, but the chloride that they need to put back as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we talked last time, you know, it, it, the RDA does not um, make you put chloride on a, on a label, but any, any supplement or anything you buy that has high sodium is also going to have high chloride. Um, mm -hmm. That's high sodium, potassium, um, magnesium, and calcium. It's going to be attached to something. And typically it's chloride or it can be bicarb too, but typically it's chloride. Okay. So, so we've been, we've been um, successful in putting the salt back, so to speak, but my opinion is, and, and what my data would show in the field, um, is that keeping the players um, in a normal state of um, chloride balance, so keeping them, say, above 102, 103, 104, um, as far as blood chloride goes before practice, is, is pretty preventive when it comes to cramping. That's good to know. So with the preventative side of things, um, and I know we talked about this briefly with um, Obviously, I think to me was unexpected results of the IV side of things. Like obviously, right. super in with your work in the NFL. That's 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 considered practice in the NFL. Not even right. just right. the IV. Everybody um, is the unintended consequences of hey, maybe that's working not because of hydration. It's working because it's spiking their chloride levels. Which, right. which with like my thought process, it in fairness went from hey over hyperhydration can lower right. sodium, I didn't expect chloride to spike that much. Um, right. I think that was that was shocking for me. But one of the other things is I think from a diet standpoint, um, we had this question after uh, you had to sign off where it really seems like, a, for lack of a better term, a Mediterranean diet is high in chloride because it's got right. magnesium chloride, sodium chloride, a lot of brine olives and things. Uh, yeah. 
feta cheeses, all sorts of things that like we associate with Italian, Greek, that Mediterranean triangle. Absolutely. Um, have you noticed any changes um, among, practically speaking, with players as far as their approach now? Like, hey, chloride is starting to show, uh, since it's starting to show up, is it, like, I guess, where's the balance? Do they say, oh, I'm not worried about sodium as much anymore? And kind of how do you, because I know, clinically speaking, how does that affect your interventions? Um, I think a lot. Um, I'm a huge advocate in putting um, the sodium and chloride back in, in the diet, right? So there are some drinks out there that have high sodium and high chloride. And that's kind of where, um, at least in a couple groups of people, that's where the research has focused. My research in, in one and I think NASA in, uh, the other, um, where the drinks have high sodium, high, particularly high chloride, which means you have to attach it to something else, which is, once again, typically magnesium and, and calcium. Uh, we stay away from the potassium because we've seen that high potassium in, in guys that cramp. We see the high potassium in preseason. So um, in you know, thinking that we probably don't need so much potassium, they get that in their diet, that we want to put the chloride with something else. Mm-hmm. But the Mediterranean diet, you're right. And, and, and one of the things that I work very closely, um, really more with, the um, registered dietitians than I do with athletic trainers anymore. Um, and that's typical of, of um, different groups of, of um, you know, athletes. Uh, but, you know, in dealing with the registered dietitians, they do go to that kind of diet, you know, right. the, the, the olives and the, and the pickles and, and the, the um, you know, peppers and the feta cheese, like you said, that's, mm-hmm. that's standard at, at training camp now. I mean, those kinds of, that kind of food is really standard. And, and that's, you know, typically what I talk to the players and I talk to the registered dietitians about that, you know, let, let's try to make sure these guys eat four good meals a day and they typically have a snack too, right? Um, and that they're putting that stuff back. Is soup is great, right? So the other okay. thing we make sure is that there's always two kinds of soup, um, that they are able to have a good variety of food that has high sodium and chloride. Yeah, we definitely have a team that I uh, went to Costco and bought a whole lot of eight ounce cans of chicken noodle soup because I kind of made, I made them. I was like, yeah. hey, this this is EBP. That's what the study said. It works. It does. I don't have a stake in the chicken noodle soup company. This is what they used. Right, right. And then they were sure, and I highlighted it in their methods and handed it to them. I'm like, oh, I'm not even making this up. They said Campbell's. So, um, but I think that's interesting because I think a lot of the ideas around diet, I think everybody's looking for that silver bullet of, hey, do I mean, we use it. I like using something like the right stuff and things like that. But um, we're very transparent with our athletes and saying that that's step three or four. I want your diet and a lot of these things. And this, I think Jeremy and I talked about this with uh, Dr. Miller a little bit after we uh, concluded with you is, well, what do we do as ATs? And I'm like, if you get the parents involved in diet, um, just hey, just include these foods with dinner on like a Wednesday, and they're going to be in better shape for Friday and things of that nature. Right, right. Have you noticed, um, so obviously like we're looking at now chloride levels um, on the other side of things. Have you noticed any increases? Are there any um, health conditions associated with hay chloride spikes? Um, Is that being associated with any health conditions we might see if that's, I always worry about that when we say we need to supplement um, electrolyte, what's it attached to? Right. So the sodium, you know, obviously in, the, in some, particularly the, the football population being, you know, larger and, and the potential for hypertension and, and things like that. I, I think, um, you know, if you're worried about something like that, uh, you know, you talk to the physician, you know, if they have diagnosed hypertension and they're on, um, you know, some type of ACE inhibitors, you know, then it's, it, it's um, you know, helpful to talk to a physician about it. But 
most of the doctors I've, I've talked to, the, the internal medicine guys that I've talked to over the years, um, you know, kind of feel that it, as long as the, you don't have players that are hypertensive, that during preseason, and this, once again, the other thing that I talked to the players and, and um, you know, parents about and other ATs about is this is not a diet necessarily that they have to use through the whole year. Now, hockey might be different. <laughs> basketball might be different, right? I know that's your, that's your area. So that's clearly... It depends on where you are in the season. So in football, obviously, it's really important in preseason in the beginning of you know, the first month, depending where where logistically you are. You know, if you're in Miami, it's different you know, than if you're in uh, New England. Mm-hmm. But I tell them, you know, come the cooler season when they're not losing as much, you know, and they get into a more of a routine and football actually easier, as you know, than hockey because they're playing once a week and they've got time to recover during the season. So once you get out of that preseason, um, you know, or, or even the summer workouts, which can be problematic for, for football, yeah. um, they should be fine. They don't need to eat a real high, salty diet. In my opinion, most of them don't mm-hmm. um, during the regular season. Now, hockey's different, right? So <laughs> hockey and basketball, then you're dealing with, you know, I always say it, 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 not just during the year, but in playoffs, right? This time of year oh, is horrible yeah. for hockey because the guys are traveling, they're in Florida, the rinks get hot, right, Mike? I mean, you think about everybody thinks that ice hockey, the rinks are cold. The, the, the bench on the, in the rinks are not cold. They've never been to the garden. So under, underneath TD Garden is North Station. So there is a train station underneath the ice rink at TD right. Garden. The, when we used to play there, this, the temperature in that arena, I, I was too hot in this. Like, I could have covered that game in a T-shirt and gloves. Like, it's right. And the yeah. ice is awful, too, but that's a whole <laughs> humidity on no, the coast in May is not I great. <laughs> we did data collection a couple times in preseason hockey at the Wells Fargo Center um, mm-hmm. with, the, with the Flyers. And, you know, I was doing every time I collect data anywhere, I do environmental readings. And the environmental readings on the bench, it was it went below globe was like 60 degrees. Yeah. So it was not cold. Like in, in the practice center in, in Voorhees, it's, mm-hmm. you know, 40, 30, 35 or 40. But, on, you know, on the bench, I was taking the environmental readings on the bench, like you said, it's not cool. And there was times like I took the Kestrel from in middle season um, out of our soccer facility. Once they were done, I put it on the bench and we had humidity readings of 65% on the bench Absolutely during practice right. at two o'clock in the afternoon. And it's like, yeah. those guys are soaking wet. They come off, there's steam rising off them, right? When you go into the locker room, there's steam coming off of them. So if you don't work hockey, if you've never worked hockey or in an environment, you don't understand how hot it can be for those players. Yeah. So that's like, the, cause that's like the thing I, I like to always steer this argument not even argument this discussion towards, and I'm sure you, I mean, majority of your work is with football, but right. obviously with your work traveling out into, I know you've done, I think um, there is um, some athletes you've worked with that, I think won the Hawaii marathon and right. no, the Ironman, the Ironman. The Ironman, Ironman. Yeah. Kona. Yeah. Which is, that guy's wow. We're doing data collection this year. My two grad students, that's the data collection. We're doing triathletes and we're actually um, hopefully collecting data in Kona. And yeah, yeah, talk about warm and humid. Yeah. So it's that all this, I think, because the argument always comes back to, well, football, football, football. I'm like, hey, there's a lot of sports that are football that honestly, right. I've seen it firsthand that have much, much, much higher sweat rates than football. And Hockey football. is the highest I've ever done, Mike. Mm-hmm. So my my three heaviest sweaters, two of them at four liters an hour were NHL uh, goalkeepers. Big, yeah. tall, Paul Lanky, you know, they weren't, they weren't real. They weren't like an offensive lineman, but you know, they're six, yeah. four, you, you know, what that type, that body type's like, right? Yeah. Four yeah. liters an hour. The first time we did that data collection, 
my grad students were collecting that part of the data and I didn't believe them. I said, you guys, it's not right. Like the yeah. highest work I've got is 3.8 and a big football player. It has to, you know, the math has to be wrong. Something's wrong. So we mm -hmm. redid the players and yeah, four liters an hour. It's crazy. Yeah. And I think that's why I always try to steer the argument with athletic trainers. And I think all those listening along should look at all their sports for this because and I think a lot of this is out of, you know, good intentions. I always talk about that. Like our highest cases of sudden death occur in football, unfortunately. Right. And so I think that's where the it, it focuses. But we look at global health initiatives and preventing things like, hey, your, your athletes that practice inside aren't immune from these huge losses. And um, especially basketball, like we were, I was starting to see numbers in basketball that <laughs> I always echo Kevin, if anyone's looking to do research, there's a lot of very easily publishable studies if people just yes. observational let's just look at these populations and get data on the table exactly uh, so we have a place hey, to let start. me ask let, when you're talking about this let me ask you something so you know you guys are clinicians too and my feeling is that you know everything is linked so much of this stuff is linked to football number one because of the deaths and you're right because of exertional heat stroke although we now know cramping has nothing to do with exertional heat stroke right Correct. but everybody thinks that and this is such a such a big thing with me, right? Everybody thinks that exercise associated muscle cramps are a, is a heat illness and it's not. I said, okay, when it happens in ice hockey in February or basketball in January and they get cramps, mm -hmm. you don't, you call it a heat, heat cramps. They're not heat cramps, right? They're not caused by the heat. They're caused by probably some type of neural combination with electrolyte imbalance. Somehow it's multifactorial, but everybody associates it with the heat. So therefore you think about preseason sports and you don't think about what's going on in December, January, February, and these, you know, sports like hockey and basketball and basketball players, right? These guys are seven foot tall. They have a body surface area that's huge. They have huge sweat rates, sweat rates as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not, and, and it's not cold in, in a basketball arena. It's, you know, 65, 70 degrees. Yeah. And I think I, and we see it across all, like I saw it in hockey constantly. I'd never see it in the second period ever. It was 100%. I kept track of this because I was curious. It was right. always in the third period right. um, with the same people. So I, I was checking off the boxes of history of cramp. And then these are people I had actually sweat tested. So I knew they had ex crazy high sweat rates that I think actually met some of the outliers that you've right. observed right. Uh, on both ends, high right. sweat sodium and high sweat rate. Like, right. Crazy. And high skill player. <laughs> and I'm like, this is not helpful. Like my coach needs them two minutes right. left in a game in a tight game. Um, and then they also check the other boxes if it's always the same place. And so right. some of these places we fixed with, um, in one of the cases we actually prevented with exercise. Um, like we did all the dietary interventions you can imagine, but what ended up fixing him was a, uh, a movement pattern approach to try and reduce fatigue in certain patterns at certain points in the game. Really? Um, yeah. So essentially the, the fatigue aspect took him. And then there's another one where we thought he was gaining weight during practice, but when we tracked him over time, no, he was getting his water back during practice. So he was that chronically under, which wow. is, a, that's a population that's, that's, that's difficult. I've seen right. three of those since I've been here where we're like, no, you're over drinking, you're over drinking. But the reality is they're getting caught up because that's their drink window is practice. Right. Like right. They don't touch anything. Um, Before that, right. So you have to oh. educate them about putting that back prior to practice. Yeah, outside right. of food. And then once we corrected that, it wasn't an issue for three years. Wow. Done. Just done. But I think it's because he was hitting a fatigue point. Plasma volume was so low. 
Right. As um, like basically, and I love this analogy from Kevin, you, he didn't have plasma volume to donate to sweating. So he was having all sorts of problems like because of that, like we're not even talking about sweating, just the role of plasma volume, aerobic capacity, you know, thermal regulation and those sorts of things. So right, right. we do notice that quite a bit. Um, but one of the other things that like, I've done, I'm sure you've heard about this is I wanted to go because foods that are also high in chloride also happen to be very fairly spicy in some cases too. So <laughs> this emerging field, I just want to get your thoughts on it. I know there's not a lot of research here, yeah. um, but this idea of how capsaicin or these spicy type products is, I mean, I have no, no conflicts of interest, but right. I have a bottle of Cholula hot sauce that worked. It worked, but I, I was approaching it from the angle of, Hey, it's, is it the chloride? Is it something stimulating those oropharyngeal reflexes? I right. kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that because that's that's fascinating to me. That's signaling, and I just yeah. me too. And I read everything that comes out that, that has come out, and there, you know, you're right. There's not much out there, but my, yeah, my my first thought is that that's a, that's a stimulation of the oropharyngeal you know receptors. That that it's a, that's it's a neural response similar mm -hmm. to the way that you know you consume mustard or, or vinegar, and and that might alleviate cramps. I mean. And Kevin's done these studies, right? It, it's not emptying from the stomach and getting in the bloodstream. It's not. It's yeah. not that, right? It's not a circulation thing. It's got to be coming from something neurologic that's that's somewhere between the mouth and the stomach, right? Yeah, and, and that's so, kind of the way I feel about that too. Yeah, and it's just I, I'm just fascinated by that whole process because it's like now, because now it opens up an entire other um, set of questions I would have for people um, with your research because you've looked at this is. Do you think that would have a potential to affect resting membrane potential? So now, if just like um, medication, so if you take a lot of medications over time, like your tolerance to that medication is based off of receptors. Right. I, I, I would have a hard time thinking something that um, influences the nervous system, even though it's not a medication, wouldn't eventually, if you keep giving yeah. it to somebody, do you have to keep giving them more to get the same effect? It's yeah, do they have a tolerance to that? I I, I don't yeah. know. You would you would think that your body would adjust to them mm -hmm. taking that, you know, frequently. I guess my thought is they're probably not taking it often enough. Like it's not probably a daily thing because most people are taking that when they do cramp, right? So it, yeah. it, it's hopefully a a it's not a prevent it's not a preventive measure. It's it's a you know this is how I treat it, right? Because yeah. so, there's two there's two things we think about we. I always get the question of, you know, what do I do when my athlete's cramping? Well, when they're actively cramping, probably not a lot, except give IV fluids, which is going to bring chloride up, and they stop cramping, whether it's plasma volume or whatever it is, or a combination of things, they typically stop cramping. Um, but short of that, what can you do immediately? You know, maybe try some of these other things, whether it's the, you know, spicy stuff or whether it's the, you know, the, the, the uh, pickle juice or whatever that might work for some people, but clearly that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah, because that's why I tell people if you're hot sauce is a hard sell for somebody that's really deep into exercise, especially maybe they've been crushing very salty things. It might have some light laceration in their mouth, and then you throw hot sauce. Yeah, in there. you I might have can't tolerate that, right? Some people can't tolerate that in their stomach. So yeah, and now you've yeah. got gastric upset. So let's right. Like, <laughs> right. sort this one out. Um, that's that's really interesting. So. And I think like moving through there, it's like this idea of active cramping. So one of the limitations we briefly talked before the podcast started that Kevin said in his podcast was we don't actually know what people look like as they're actively cramping 
you've seen this. And so yeah. can you just take us through, I mean, we, we talked about it briefly, but what have you seen in the, the data of somebody goes down with a cramp? You've, I'm correct to assume you've actually taken their blood while they're having a cramp right, on the right. field. I'm just curious what those numbers look like. So I have, I have about four or five years of consecutive data collection of, of uh, you know, looking at those those things. And I, I, Kevin's going to kill. Kevin's been wanting me to publish this for years, and I kind of sat on it for a while. So I tried to figure some things out because I was seeing things. But you know, the, one of the good things about working with the same team is you identify problems, and you, you started to decrease the number of of cramps we had. Right, so. The first couple of years I may have been collecting data, maybe we had 20 guys that cramped, right, um, in that first week or so. And then the next, you know, we kind of identified problems. We were doing some interventions. We were, we were giving some supplements. Um, and then we started to decrease the number of cramps we had. So I had less and less data over the course of that five years, which is a good thing, right? Um, and, and that's kind of where we are now. Now, the other thing I want to throw in there is, you know, in 2011, the NFL had the change in the CBA, so they went to the, you know, um, less rigorous preseason, right, just like the NCAA did. So part of, I will say, that part of, part of their decreasing, decrease in cramps, I'm sure, is because of a decrease in, um, you know, time spent on the field, right? So I want to say that right up, up, up front. But anyway, getting back to the data collection, yeah, we, um, we did really two, well, we did a, a few sets of data. Well, we did a bunch of data collection, but two specific sets of data collection, which I think are really important. One was looking at um, blood samples taken when the guys are actively cramping, and then after they've been given a couple liters of full saline, which it was is the treatment of choice um, when, the, when the guys are cramping at, at camp. So looking at um, everything from hematocrit, hemoglobin, lactate, sodium, chloride, potassium. Uh, we looked at body weight change. Um, we looked at um, some urine urine uh, values, which are probably not as helpful um, in, in this situation. Uh, and then we looked at, um, then, so we compared that data set. And then we looked at um, data in players that cramped. And then the same guys after a similar practice when they didn't cramp. So we had the same players. And I think I have a set of 13 or 15 guys when they cramped, um, at, when they were actively cramping. And then typically it was the next day after the same practice. So if a full pad of practice usually is when they cramping. So the next day after a full pad of practice when they didn't cramp. And I took all that same. I asked them for to give me a blood sample after uh, after practice. So those were two, I think, really good, good studies that, that we had. Um, so what you see, what I saw... Um, in the guys before, they, while they're cramping, and then after they get two liters of IV fluids, right? So you're taking blood, and, and this is where you and I were talking. It can get a little crazy in the training room, right? So you can imagine these guys are laying on the table. They're, they're actively cramping, most of them systemically. So one of the things I really kind of wanted to look, look at was not just the guys that had, like, calf cramps, the guys yeah. that had multiple muscle cramps and, and we're talking and you've seen this that you most clinicians have seen this right yeah, they come about in football pecs yeah. yes forearms calves anterior tib you're talking about quads hands low back like they're in multiple muscle cramps um so fortunately um i was able to work with good um internal medicine fellows mm -hmm. and and a couple of the years the fellows were very into it so their goal when they put the IVs in, they put the catheter in, and then before they hook up the IV fluids, they give me 10, uh, 10 mLs of blood. 
Oh, so, wow. I, I was going to ask. I was like, are we talking like a little earlobe? No, no, no. Or, Eight to ten They're pulling a full because I got to put it. So then, so the funny thing is, and I typically had one person helping me. We have like, you know, um, we, we have syringes of, of blood, right? So you got to run them down to, the, and my lab is close, right? So I set up my whole lab there at, at camp. So it's, it's right around the corner. But I've got to put those, uh, put the blood into different cubettes and different the hemoglobin hematocrit i got to put some blood into um uh vials that are heparinized and things like that so we can keep it and we have spinning other blood for serum osmolality and so you can imagine you've done this kind of work right? i just want to pause you i just want to pause real quick i just don't <laughs> I, I don't want that amount of blood to be lost on people listening along because i think um I, people need to understand like 10 five milliliters of blood greatly increases the accuracy of dr folks codex um results and the accuracy of her blood measurements compared to um, some of the things we use in marathon that are just like a little finger prick. And I'll still give right. you sodium, plasma. I use air right. quotes because you can't do that. So 10 milliliters, so two, five milliliters of yeah. vials of blood is, I mean, that's fantastic. I think that's- And we typically, um, we typically um, will get rid of the first milliliter or two too. So it, we don't even use the, the first blood. And the other thing I will tell you is, after, because this is really important, and you know this, after the IVs are given, right? Um, so we take blood after the IVs are given. We also take three or four mLs and discard it, right? Because you got to take out anything that's in potentially in that IV line or, or that's still in that little catheter, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to do a, a, a three mL discard, and then you take your 10 mLs of blood. So we were really good at doing that. And did we get blood on every single guy that cramped? No, but we got blood on probably 85 to 90 percent of the guys that cramped. Wow. If they cramped up in the dining hall or something like that, we didn't get them. So they had to cramp, like you know, right after practice in the actual facility where we were. Um, and we got some really nice data for three or four consecutive years, as, as you know, you can imagine. But anyway, so getting back to the results. So yes, it is crazy data collection, and you understand. But the other thing too is, you don't. If I have 15 subjects, they weren't all on one day. Mm -hmm. Right. So you might have three or four on one day. And then, you know, because we had preseason, you know, is, is several weeks long. Typically, this happens in the first week, but you're getting three or four guys a day. Usually we're not doing many more than that. Um, but even that's that's, you know, crazy. A lot of blood to be running around and, and then running through the analyzers. And, and you know what that's like. Um, but we were really good at the prep stuff. I mean, I was very, you know, we've done a lot of lab research, too. Right. So I know how to prep the blood. I know I know how to handle it well. I know what's going to give me good data. Um, but anyway, the, the key thing in that study in looking at when the guys are actively cramping and then after they've had a couple liters of fluid, typically it was two, sometimes the big guys would get three liters of full saline and then look at the data. And I can tell you there's hematocrit and hemoglobin go down certainly because plasma volume goes up. So you, absolutely that's going to happen. Um, so, you know, there's a significant, um, decrease in, in, um, hematocrit and hemoglobin, a significant increase in plasma volume. Um, everything else was the same. Lactate was no different. Sodium was no different. Potassium typically went down a little bit, right? So these guys, when they're cramping, will often have blood potassiums at five or above, a little bit above, five, 5.5. Um, so potassium would come down. But the one thing that always went up was chloride. Chloride would always go up from whatever it was, and it was in the 90s almost all the time. So anywhere from 92 to 98, which is hypochloremic, it would then go up to 102, 103, 104. So there's a significant change, which was not just clinic, it was not just significantly um, higher, but clinically different, right? 
um, that would always go up. Um, other than that, the guys were no more, you know, I mean, they were not dehydrated. We take, we would do serum osmolalities, right? And that one study that I'm talking about, serum osmo when the guys were cramping was like 288, you know, so they were not, they were not really dehydrated, so to speak. They were not terribly dehydrated, you know, um, when they cramped. Yeah. And I, I, um, oh, sorry. I talked too loud. My, this was picking up. Um, but I've actually got the data for my study up right here. And I was just looking at, so I was taking blood from people while they were running on a treadmill in a heat chamber and two max and same thing. So they're not cramping actively, but right. they're just what you said, their Osmo lality all the way down the line on average. I'm like looking at this, it's all within normal. Right. Normal. normal. Right. These people are right. losing 2% body weight. Right. It well, the most important, the most, probably the most important, that, so that was an important study, and that gave me an idea that, you know, certainly the plasma volume could be, could play a role. Certainly, um, if there's an osmoreceptor in the gut or something for sodium that could play, I mean, an osmoreceptor somewhere that, that could play a role. Um, but the chloride going up, um, I think, was, was like a key finding for me. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing, the other, um, the other study that we did was taking those same players, right? So I had 12 or 13 players that cramped and I got the blood, same, same, same data collection, right? Take those that 10 mLs of blood while they're cramping and then ask them for 10 mLs of blood after a practice. So it was still after the practice, you almost always the next day when they didn't cramp and then compare that data. So I've got the same players when they cramp versus when they don't cramp. Mm -hmm. And once again, there was no difference in serum osmolality. There was no difference in hematocrit, hemoglobin. Um, sodium, potassium, no difference. There's no difference in body weight loss. They were both like 2% body weight loss. Um, serum osmolality was normal, right? Mm -hmm. The only difference was blood chloride was low when they cramped. Like yeah, chloride when they cramped were in the 90s and when they didn't cramp, it was you know in the hundreds. And, and that one hasn't been published yet. No. So my, my, my call to you is that has to see the light of day beyond this podcast. Cause that, that's fascinating because all these interventions, like I, I think we're getting lucky because we're focusing on sodium. Right. But it's the chlor the chlorine, the chloride side of things that might actually be what's helping. Um, and so it's, I think the law of unintended consequences, like, oh, right. well, it's sodium. This is why it's working and actually has nothing to do with it. It's just the bonded chemical. So like, yeah, it okay. could be magnesium chloride. There's lots of really good forms for you to attach to magnesium. Plus, hey, we need more magnesium in our diet too. Exactly, exactly. So let me throw another thing in here. So it very well could have more to do with the anion gap being off mm -hmm. when the guys cramp. And there's more than one thing that could cause that, right? So if you're talking about systemic cramping and it's something um, electrolyte related, right? It could be, it could be that it's a change in anion gap, which I was not able to do because you have to get bicarb to, to do that. So it's a, it's much more complicated blood sampling um, in the field because you have to store it right. We treat, we had a grant, we tried to do it. We got some, but not enough really to, to make an impact um, in order to really calculate the anion gap. But my thought is, and I actually, I actually reviewed a paper that was never published, and this was probably 15 years ago, and it, my opinion was it should have been published because they did a similar kind of data collection in a college, and I won't tell you who it was or where, um, but 
They did a similar data collection in a college where they took the guys when they were cramping and when they weren't cramping. Or maybe they had a different group that wasn't cramping. But anyway, they did find a difference in the anion gap. They didn't calculate that, which was interesting. They didn't use that data to calculate that way. But they were they found differences in chloride. They found differences in bicarb. Um, but they didn't really calculate the anion gap, which I did, right, because I, ha I, I, I had the data. But... Um, I think that there are, well, there are other things that can mess up the anion gap, one of which is a change in bicarb. So could it be, because this goes with the, with the fatigue and this goes with the work, right? This goes with um, the guys that cramp are typically the ones that are working really hard, right? Whether that's hockey or whatever, like you said, it's in the third period, they're, they're blowing off a lot of CO2, right? their anion gap is changing, could it be that part of cramping comes from the hyperventilation and the change in the anion gap because of the change in the bicarb? Because bicarb displaces, so if you look at the anion gap, and it's, it's complicated here to talk about it, but bicarb will displace chloride. So maybe the chloride is low because something else is causing it to be low. It's not because they're losing it in their sweat. And both Kevin and I have done data collections looking at Sweat, sodium and chloride, and crampers versus non-crampers, and it's no different. The sweat, the sweat, sodium and chloride, and guys that cramp is no different than the guys that don't cramp. But it could be that. Go ahead. I was gonna say, so you'll like this because one of the things, like I, we briefly talked about this three years ago, and I didn't stop thinking about it. Um, we're in the process of trying to get um, to test people with a spirometry, but we want a CO2 sensor in it because oh. I'm. I, I, I'm still convinced this is part of it just because it's yeah. it's physiology. And I think um, just for those listening along, nothing happens in isolation. And so right. when you're dealing with physiology, so it's like if I have someone that's hyperkalemic, um, there's lots of other that there's a reason that's so problematic. There's a right. reason rhabdo occurs and things like that. So and it could be that just certain people are more prone or more sensitive to that mm -hmm. that change you know what i mean so so the question would always be well there's a lot of guys working hard mm -hmm. and and i got might be off and other other players that aren't cramping but you know i, I don't know maybe it is a sensitivity to that there's you know more in people that are prone to cramping than not i don't know because i think that's what i like was what we're looking at because obviously clinically speaking like you said in a research setting um measuring that is difficult so it's even borderline impossible for me, but if there is a link between CO2 blow off that we can draw that line, now I have a practical clinical measure that's accessible. Right. Uh, or still going to cost money, but more accessible than, yeah. you know, needing a whole room full of blood equipment that exactly you know, I could never repurpose what I did my research with. Right, so let me, jump in, let me jump in real why. quick. Um, you guys are talking about bicarbonate. Isn't that what like Alka-Seltzer or um, Tums, well, I'm, I'm sorry, Tums, isn't that what Tums has? Sodium bicarbonate? Right. Mm -hmm. And so yes. what yeah. is the, because I've heard of lots of marathon people saying, you know, just grab a handful of Tums and you should be okay. So how does, how does that uh, connect? I, I think it might. And for some people that does, that does work. Um, the problem with taking a lot of bicarb or things with bicarb is it's not typically, um, most people can't tolerate it very well. It causes real stomach distress. And that was kind of an ergogenic aid that was played around with probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Right. Um, and it, it can work cause it helps the buffer, but it, 
it also is difficult to take that way, right? So it's difficult to ingest because it causes stomach upset. But you're right. Along those lines, you would think if it was, it was, if it was tolerated and absorbed, that it could potentially work. Yeah, so that's what I'm thinking. Like if we look at uh, this is cardiopalm, so this is clearly leaving what we were talking about, or maybe not. Um, if we can control respiration, that CO2 exchange rate, does right. that? start changing that anion gap to where it's manageable because we know through kevin's the research he brought up like yeah we know once you have a cramp you're more susceptible for the next 60 minutes once it occurs right okay but how susceptible can we at least dial that volume back simply by just getting breathing under control yeah i mean maybe yeah is it that interesting to think about that Yeah. yeah yeah and that's and that's just something we see, like we're always trying to talk with people, calm them down and get their breathing rate just so we can communicate. But it's right. the, again, the good intentions byproduct of sodium could actually be chloride, getting people calmed down could actually be normalizing respiration rate just so you can have a conversation. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That Nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So when you're dealing with all these things going on, you know, the intervention, that's why, that's probably why more than one intervention works, right? Yeah. Because there are, there are multiple things that play a role in the anion gap. So if you... If you give them chloride, for instance, it will normalize the anion gap. So giving the IVs doesn't really change the sodium because IV saline has the same amount of sodium as, as blood, right? It has 154 milliequivalents and blood has 135 to 145, mm-hmm. but it has significantly more chloride. So if like chloride is 95 and you're giving 154 milliequivalents of, of chloride, it's bringing chloride way back up. So it's normalizing the anion gap, right? Yeah. Um, and that's where I think like interventions like that can actually become more accurate because now they might just be looking at, okay, well, how much IV do they need to restore chloride? Right. Might be significant. I don't know this. Might be significantly less than to restore just plasma volume. Right. And then we can focus on oral rehydration, diet, and all sorts of other things that honestly, a high school AT can do that and I can do that because that's affordable. Right. IVs are not affordable. <laughs> right. No, exactly. And they're not practical. I mean, yeah, no. you, can't, you can't do that, right? So, but I can tell you, so... When I when I still am at, at camp and 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 uh, you know looking at the players that are the problem players, right? So they're the ones that I always get. Who are, who who's the group of fifteen guys that are typically they're young guys coming in because they haven't been fixed yet and they haven't been studied yet. Um, but I can tell you, and this is just and this is not it's not I don't have the ability to publish this because it's it's for just clinical interaction with the players, right? If I can have a player. Start practice with a blood sodium above 102. So if their blood sodium is 103, 104, they will not cramp. Mm-hmm. If I have a player that has a blood sodium bordered on 100, they have a potential to cramp. If they're in the 90s, I can tell you they are most likely going to cramp. Mm-hmm. So my goal is always when I know I have the ability to take blood before practice, right? So the the, the good thing is I'm I'm able to watch that, right? So if a player has a blood sodium or blood chloride of 98, they might be able to get an IV, right, before practice and bring that blood chloride up to 104. Now, my goal is always, as we talked about coming full circle, the diet, right? So if I can get these guys to eat a diet that's high in sodium and chloride, right? So chloride for me is the case. So if I can get their diet, um, you know, such that blood chloride is, is in that 100 and, you know, four, five, six range, I'm telling you, they, they're going to be fine. And you can just talk to the players and, and they know. I mean, they, they can feel when they're not feeling right. And you know that, right? Any patient that's been around players are like, I'm going to cramp, Mike. I mean, I'm going to go, right? I, I feel it. Yeah, they'll tell you it's coming. 
It will exactly. not be surprised. Exactly. And they'll tell you days that they feel really great. You know? I've, I've had them skate by the bench in game and like literally yell at me, it's coming. It's coming. And then yeah. they come back and then they get off the ice and just like fall down in the hallway. And it's just like, <laughs> at least exactly. I knew you were coming off the ice with something. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So, Jerry, based on where we're at, have um, any questions popped up from people following along, or do you have any? I see you writing. <laughs> yeah, actually, I just got a text. I don't know if you heard that I'm buzz. Take, I'm taking notes, too. So, <laughs> so uh, Thomas Pitmecki, he's watching out there in San Antonio, or close to San Antonio. Um, he said he had a team doctor that recommended Tums for crampers, but he was, um, he was using it for the calcium uptake, not the bicarbonate. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are doctors who, who think the magnesium and, and calcium are important, and they, they might be. All the, you know, we're talking about the anion gut, gut. They all play a role in the anion gut, right? It's just that they play a very small role, but maybe that small role is additive or something. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, once again, if nothing happens in the vacuum, and if we're talking about changes and having an abnormal anion gap causing potentially cramping, any of those kinds of um, ions could play a role. Well, and I would add um, the the king of the castle and the gatekeeper is always going to be gastric emptying. So even if we're talking about what is occurring at the receptor that's causing actin and myosin to, by the time that person ingests calcium for it to right. have its intended effect, I would say it might help them later, maybe beforehand, or like it's there's no time in the four quarters of a football game for I think that to not only be it'll leave the stomach. I won't deny that, right? but filter through the bloodstream and get to where it needs to be so the calf doesn't cramp. Right. I, I, I would argue that would be quite delayed. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, once again, that's a question you always get um, from, from clinicians is how do I, what, what do I do to treat the cramp when it happens? Well, you know. Stretch it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Do what you typically do. Yeah. All right. And then Lindsay Lochran uh, wanted to, go back over again the foods that are high in chloride and you guys have you said that at the beginning the mediterranean diet but can you hit that again sure i think what we were looking at is um i mean you're gonna find like tomatoes lettuce olives uh seaweed i know that's becoming more yeah. and more popular to find um and that's obviously that that's less of a mediterranean um i mean i, I live in boston and we have a, a lot of uh, uh, Asian dominated foods and seaweed is becoming more and more just readily available for me to find in the grocery store. Um, but it's, I think things of that nature. And then, um, uh, uh, I think, what is it? Walnuts or almonds? Oh man. I'm trying to think of magnets. I don't remember. I, you know, we do a lot of the Mediterranean. We do a lot of, uh, um, a lot of the Asian food, soy sauce and things like that. Um, I mean, the problem with chloride once again, is it's not on labels. Yeah. So unless you do some digging, almonds and know. cashews, almonds and cashews. cashews. So there you go. There you go. There you go. I knew I was missing. And quinoa, I know, has it too. Whole grain breads. And so, like, I think all the trends we're seeing here is it's just like if um, I know there's obviously the argument against processed foods, but just a whole foods and a balanced diet, you will get a lot of this. And I think it speaks to some other. You know, obviously, we know we have some food insecurity, you know, discussions to have. Um, I know the high school I started my career at, food insecurity was a problem. Um, so a lot of kids were getting their food from the cafeteria. Uh, right. But um, but even still, it's just like, yeah, we can find almonds, we can find cashews, you can find wheat breads, you can find 
olives, even if they're out of a jar, not at Whole Foods out of that olive bar. Right, right. <laughs> 90 different lettuce varieties. Cheese, right, yeah, yeah. Spinach. And then um, and dressing, like, you know, salads and dressing. So it doesn't have to be a high fat diet. You know, yeah. you, you can find those kinds of foods that have that, you know, high chloride. Yeah. yeah. And then Emily Anna Stein said, can you go back and discuss specifics how you used exercise to prevent cramps? Sure. So I think um, what we were able to do, and and this kind of gets back to, I took um, the case study we talked about, I think it's in the show notes from Dr. Miller's first podcast. It was a case study of a triathlete who, I mean, this is a, if I remember the patient profile correctly, a top 10 in the world, Ironman triathlete who was having chronic ham- hamstring cramping. They did everything, all the metabolic, I <laughs> literally everything. And what cured and reduce this individual was a 26 week glute activation program one day a week. Wow. Um, so taking from that idea, we did uh, a number of measurements on this individual athlete to gauge um, their strength and conditioning numbers over a period of time to when this became a problem and looked at where the drop-offs were and then modified their strength program to include more of a global hip because um, it was a hip dominant sport. It's ice hockey. So a global hip dominant um strengthening pattern to really we always say focus on glutes but is that dynamic focusing on glutes or just saying you know do your four-way hip and hope for the best it was more resisted band work um plyometrics a lot of plyometrics step ups box jumps landing a lot of landing training because training someone to absorb the ground before they take off requires a great deal of eccentric control of the hips and um adding more of that into their program as well as I, I can't change much on the ice necessarily for that individual, but um, long-term it was beneficial um, for them to just focus on that. And then in full honesty, we added sodium for the sole purpose of um, plasma volume expansion. So right. a sodium loading protocol to expand their aerobic capacity on the other side. So I've got an increase in hip in certain areas that they were missing from lift, but also increasing their aerobic capacity just to delay general fatigue as best they can. Um, That's a moving goalpost because some games are different than others. Um, Some rinks are hotter than others, or I can be up at St. Lawrence where the starting temperature in the rink is uh, 34 degrees. So um, (laughs) that happened. (laughs) And and in that that game was no problems because now I have a person who doesn't have to thermoregulate as hard because the rink is cold. Right. And so now their fatigue is going to be less. And so I think right. that's, a, that's an important piece as well. Um, which I don't know if that answers her question directly because it just means it's more complicated than it is simple. Um, but identifying how they're fatiguing, um, is a big piece of it. Cause sometimes it's also just the conversation with the coach. Maybe all their strength numbers are fine. It's like, Hey, we have to, maybe not limit their minutes, be more strategic with them. So maybe we don't load them up at a certain point in the game because we got to rely on this person. But if this is a high school setting where this question's coming from, I sympathize because the high school team I worked for also had a single running back that got (laughs) that running back didn't play. We lost the game. So I, I can understand, you know, the challenges that might be. I get those questions from the high schools when the, the kids still played both ways, right? So you got a you got a receiver that's a D back or running back that's yeah. a D back to you know you have that what what do you do? It's your best player in the field and he's playing both ways. And that's what I tell asked I've asked the coach that in, even early in my career where I'm like, okay, so if his greatest contribution is on the offensive side of the football, can we m- modify reps or put him in a formation right. that 
is less stressful on him in the other direction. And sometimes right. that can be global fatigue wise helpful in that regard. You know, you just hit on something I think is really important for people to understand. And that is when we're talking about this fatigue issue, that it does fatigue you sooner if you have to thermoregulate more. I mean, which is so in the exercise in a, you know, thermally stressful environment, warm, humid, whatever, um, you are going to fatigue faster. And I think that's something that we have to understand that fatigue probably does, it does play a role, you know, in this cramping issue and the fatigue is going to happen when, when it's hotter. Yeah, and I think, um, and with that, and this is more of the thermoregulation side, I think more ATs need to realize a body temperature of 104 degrees is normal. It's, it's abnormal. Normal. It's abnormal when you can't regulate it anymore. Right. So, um, and we had some talks with the, um, actually on campus educational sessions with the Corey Stringer Institute, because, well, they're close by, and um, right. CASA is fantastic. But they have another education um, opportunity of performance in the heat. So, there's the safety side, but now the performance side. And the big take home we had from that is uh, the first person to 104 is the first person that slows down. And so if you yeah. can delay, and this is where we get into pre-cooling and if we can ice yeah. people before they run and you know lower their body temperature a single half degree, mm -hmm. translate into five extra minutes at their peak, um, which is crazy in a team sport if you can give somebody that kind of advantage for two to three minutes absolutely just by sitting in an ice bath for 10 minutes before a game um but it's the same thing like yeah it's humans are like computers a computer has to work really hard to get rid of heat so do humans um right. so yeah and if a we did we did that with slushies mike which once again is a, a study that's not not published in full manuscript we uh we did the slushies which has also been shown uh somebody did that study in europe i think mm -hmm. um or maybe Australia, where the slushy, we did it with our football players at Westchester. So we had them consume slushies and we had um, on a different, it was a randomized study. It was a, mm -hmm. kind of a lab field study, right? Yeah. So we had them before practice to ingest a certain amount of slushy, decrease their their um, their body temperature before they went out, you know, out to practice. And we can't, you can't really, you know, it, it's hard to have an objective measure of performance in that situation. Um, but we were able to significantly drop their body temperature compared to, to compared to fluid that was uh, refrigerated. It wasn't even room temperature; it was refrigerated. Yeah. So, so it's like between. I want to mention in the performance, like you were saying, Chris Burns' study, and this goes along with what they're finding with performance. And and you said the people that get hottest, quickest, slow down. They slow down, right? If you look at Chris Burns' study when he put the ingestible sensors into 18 marathon runners, this was published in MedSci. I think back in, I don't know, it may even be 2005 or maybe 2010, something like that. But um, he put it, the ingestible sensors in to eight marathon runners during an actual marathon. And if you look at that data, it's really interesting because the race, the top eight finishers, almost all of them reached their maximum core temperature at the end of the race. Mm -hmm. The people that were the slower finishers got hot quickly and then clearly slowed down and their body temperature either stayed the same or came down. Do you have that ability to um, kick at the end, yeah. have their, you know, and, and have their highest temperatures at the end. And acclimation. And I watched this real time last week at our track and field championships. Uh, we were in Elon, North Carolina during mm. the 5k, the start of the race at two o'clock in the afternoon was 87 degrees with 84% humidity. Oh my God. All I'm surprised they did it. Our team, our entire year had one 
day of training over 70 degrees prior to that race and the performance drop off like we did really well thank <laughs> our husky actually won the race but um, a lot of the schools like it's been a pretty abnormally cold cool right period up and down the east coast right 30 people started that race 15 finished so wow. and that was last weekend so i think that's the thing that's 5k that, right. We're not even talking 26.2 here. We're right. that's 5K. Right. Um, granted, they're racing. They're at their max effort, and that's not your average weekend warrior. But right, right. Uh, but yeah, they can have pretty quick, even in a 5K. Right. Yeah. Certainly in a 10K, you get a lot of people that have very high core temperatures. And these are people 100%. If I put them in a lab and take them to a fatigue test, they are fit. They are trained. I right. change temperature, they can't finish the 5K, and it's right. not their fault. They're just not acclimated. Right. Absolutely. What am I going to do in New England? But then I got the Falmouth Road Race where the most heat stroke cases happen every August. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We had uh, we have a new heat policy now that, that uh, was developed in our in our PSAC. And it was somewhat um, spun off of I mean, I've been kind of pushing it, but it was somewhat spun off of um, uh, we had our field hockey team go up to Boston yeah. in August. And it was ungodly hot and humid up there this past August. And we had to, they had to change the game time. I mean, we oh. had conference calls and everything because it was just too hot to fight. Yeah, the last, the last four years, we've had to throw the red flag in the middle of August, in the middle of September, last four years. Um, we had to move practices, cancel practices. Everything was before, after sunup, sundown. Right. And that's like, this is, Boston, this is New England, and so it's like, yeah, it happens here too. It's not just a not just a southern thing. Right. It's frequent in the south, but it still happens yeah. here too. Hey, can we go back to the slushies real quick? Um, yeah. Describe what that means. Like, is that just you go to the Seven Eleven or whatever it is and get buy a slushie and have them chug yeah. that? It, actually, we did. We we had them drink. I think it was. I have to go back and look at that data. I think it was uh, 7.5 mLs per kg of body weight. I think that's what it was. But it's it's published in abstract form. But we had the players. We actually got. I actually got a slushy machine in in the lab. So I had it there. We were you know making the slushies right there, um, which went over great by the way. But I can tell you, it was like the best preseason for. I had to open it up to everybody. We did it in football. But we had all the soccer players and hockey players. We had to kind of say, okay, everybody can do slushies. We'll just, you know, everybody come in and do it. But anyway, so we um, had them, it was a fair amount, I will say, over a half an hour time period. They had to drink a fair amount of the slushies in order for us to, you know, um, to cool them down. Uh, and I, I based it on the other data that I think, maybe it was not Australia, there's another study. They call it an ice slurry. So the, the, uh, the title of that is ice slurry ingestion. If you look that up, I, I don't I forget who did that. They did it in runners, and they also found a significant decline in, in core temperature um, in, in consuming that. But it seems to work in lowering that. Uh, we were talking about cramping. I don't know if it does anything about cramping, but it certainly will lower body temperature before practice. Yeah, and I think that's just that um, the fatigue issue that I, I still think that's a big part of it because it's, it's like – they you can voluntarily contract a muscle to the point where it cramps. And if you're voluntarily contracting it in an abnormal pattern, because we have plenty of research that shows us fatigued people change their movement patterns, right. regardless of why they're fatigued. So if we're abnormally stressing a movement pattern, you know, they're fatigued for lots of reasons. Maybe it's sleep, maybe it's diet, maybe it's hydration, maybe it's fatigue is a mediator, it's stress. Right. Um, and, and I think you see these um, more like, old wives tales really common in the, the endurance community i always tell people this 
at the USA Cycling Velodrome in Colorado Springs, there's an ice machine in there. But if you look on top of the ice machine, there's four flavors for um, for ice. Really? The ice machines also it's like the really thin. Fla- you can make a slushy out of it. I was gonna say you can have a, like a snow cone out of it, right? Yeah. So, uh, so this is like a group of people that have figured this out mm-hmm. probably through trial and error. Like, hey, if I if I basically crush flavored ice for 30 minutes and then go on like a, a 10k race, I do better. I start right. cooler. I don't have to, and they all do it. They're all like trying to like water themselves down and everyone does this. And that's, I think we should really pay closer attention to that. I know the research is catching up and saying, yeah, we have adjustable thermistors. So we know the one that gets hottest last is the one who wins. Right. And, it's, and yeah, it doesn't matter how good you are. Um, I've had right. marathoners drop out at the Boston marathon. Uh, the one year it was unseasonably hot because they peaked at mile. I'm at 24 point and something. I wasn't this year, but when I'm typically there and it's, yeah, if I abnormally hot, that's what they, it's almost like they're so fine tuned. They, they can't get past. There's a mile and a half to the finish line after me. That's right. it. Like, they feel it say, Nope. And they, they drop out, they get on the bus and go home. Yeah, exactly. So wasn't the Boston, wasn't it really hot this year? So I, I, this year was like almost the worst. So it started yeah. out super cold. Um, like where hypothermia was a problem because it was yeah. raining all morning. Um, and then right about the time the elites finished, the skies cleared and it got up to about 65, 70 degrees, which is very problematic for your your four hour, your 330 plus four hour marathon runner. Right, absolutely. From a heat standpoint. And I, I, I've treated marathoners even in the 230, 245 for heat stroke, but um, that's rare. That's really yeah. rare. It's mostly, you know, the not as acclimated. They're training in New England. I mean, the race is in April, so. Right, exactly. So they're not, yeah, they're not acclimatized. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm a real big, I'm a fan of the, uh, you know, having a cold, uh, cold pool, cold tub, something like that. I mean, I know it can be really problematic for, you know, athletic trainers to have, and I'm not talking about, you know, people coming into your training room and sitting in the whirlpool, but mm-hmm. having access to cooling down, particularly on days in preseason where you have multiple practices. So yeah. soccer, runners, whatever. And I think that's, um, and I, and I get on this, I didn't get on it with Kevin because uh, it's an easy soapbox for me to climb about evaluating research. I think there was a the meta-analysis, I think that came out last year, or maybe the year before, um, about uh, there's no effect on uh, strength. There's actually a negative effect on strength gains because of ice bath. I'm like, okay, I'm not saying that's not true, but there's an entire other body of research that says I can have a very positive effect as well with it. Right. If we're not talking about, which, so it's a total double-edged sword, but I'm like, right. if I cool somebody faster, I have a greater parasympathetic response. Exactly globally, which is going to be that recovery we're all seeking. Um, Now, is it the right time of year because of strength gains? It might not be. So that's why maybe during preseason or acclimatization, you don't use that because we need those strength gains and that acclimatization to happen. But mid-season for an abnormally hot day, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) You're not going to affect their performance negatively. You're probably only going to help them. Right. Right, so kind of right. going back to the the slushy real quick. Thomas asked another question. He's like, would sure. something like using Gatorade powder or maybe like a really concentrated Gatorade be beneficial? Or uh, I know you you mentioned that there's just flavoring you could put on the ice, and uh, and again the focus is lowering the core temperature. But could you do um, two of those things at once? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, the the problem that is those logistics, and um, one of the products, and I don't, I mean, I mean. 
Dr. Folks got actually upfront about this um, with her work, you know, consulting with Levelin and things like that is something that I think they were able to do that most other companies can't, haven't been able to do is um, their products freeze. It, yeah. it becomes a block of ice. So it might start as a slushy, but then you can't eat it. it it's literally ice um, right. where depending on, and I, and I know we tried this with Levelin, um, the composition, like we tried to kind of pseudo make a slushy. It wasn't like a true slushy. Um, it doesn't freeze. And that's a very high sodium product that it's, yeah, it's totally possible to do. Right. With that, that product was actually partially made for that reason is because it, it will make a slushy. So getting back to the question of Gatorade and any kind of sport drink like that, you cannot make a slushy with that. There, there's something called a bricks level. Um, and if, you know, I did a lot of my own research in, in what makes things freeze, what doesn't, what kind, what kind of uh, compositions does it have to be? And it does have to have a certain amount of carbohydrate in it. So none of those drinks, um, like, like Gatorade, Powerade, none of those drinks are going to make a slushy for you. Mm -hmm. Um, they're actually, they ruin the machines actually, because they yeah. have, uh, the people that rent you the machines, they'll tell you right up front, don't put that kind of stuff in my machine. They'll ruin my machine. Um, yeah. but there are, a, there is a couple things that will, we actually made, we actually, when I did this study was before leveling was even around, we made, we made the formula. We actually took a tea formula that was high in sodium concentration. Mm -hmm. And we actually added the, the, um, the, um, sugar to it to make, you know, to make a formula that would do a slushy, and then we could also just put it in the refrigerator and have a drink, and it was very palatable, right? Yeah. Um, but the question of going back to just using anything for a slushy, you cannot, you can't do that. And again, that's not that you shouldn't, it kills your machine and your concession stand crew <laughs> might be really upset with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good? Good. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't really have any other questions. I was thinking, I always ask, I ask, I always ask people that do a lot of research and teach um, this questions kind of the way I like to wrap things up is um, like with these types of topics, who are you, I mean, you do a lot. So a lot of people are like reading what you produce, but um, who are you reading? Like in this, in this field, like people want to learn more, like what are the names and people that they should look to uh, like speaking at conferences, writing articles in magazines or peer reviewed articles and research, just looking in that, that direction. I don't, the new, I, I don't know who's doing it. Other than the people that are out there that have been doing this for a while, you know, Kevin and, and, you know, myself and, you know, Marty Schwellness and, you know, some people like that, that are still doing the cramping stuff. There, there's, you know, it's kind of like the same players as far as I, I can tell, you know, whether, whether NATA people are, are people that are presented at ACSM. Um, the one thing I wanted to say that we have we didn't talk about was that the study that we just did in the lab it was an 18-month study that we did data collection looking at um, over-drinking versus drinking to thirst. And the one point I want to make about this was we're talking about core, and one of the things that I've been very upfront recently about is that hyponatremia, exercise-associated hyponatremia in particular, mm -hmm. is more likely to cause muscle cramps than being dehydrated. And people really need to understand that. And when you when you look at the, the most common signs and symptoms of people who are hyponatremic are headache, nausea, muscle cramps. So once again, my feeling, and we just did this in the laboratory study, we had we had 20 people, who did males and females, I guess there were 22 subjects, randomized crossover study, 
you know, exactly the same environmental situations. One time they came in and ran for two straight hours and we did uh, blood urine, all the data collection, pre-run, mid-run at one hour, post-run, and then 20 minutes post-run. So that was our, our data. Um, but looking at um, blood parameters, when the, um, when the subjects overdrank, they obviously they gained weight, almost everybody gained weight, all of the women gained weight. Um, one of the other things we saw was not just a decline in blood sodium, right? The women actually, by the end of the two hours, the mean blood sodium was 135. So we had women as low as 131. We actually made, I should say that my, my our IRB was like beside themselves that we did this study because we made eight of the subjects ill that we had to treat. We had to keep them in the lab and treat them for hyponatremia um, and keep taking their blood so that it, it normalized before we let them leave the lab. They were physically um, sick because of the drinking schedule. Um, anyway, that's the point I'm trying to make is not only were they hyponatremic, but they were hypochloremic as well. So if people are over drinking, potassium doesn't change. Like we are very careful at, at regulating the potassium. So we'll let other things happen and still continue to regulate potassium, as you know. So it's all, you know, four, 4.2, whatever. That stayed the same. Um, when they drank the thirst, everything went up slightly, but stayed exactly where you want it. Like they were 142, I think, throughout pretty much the means, right? Um, but when they overdrank, like chloride dropped, the blood, um, I mean, blood sodium certainly dropped, but blood chloride in a lot of them was, uh, were under, was under 100. So once you come back to that cramping, and the overhydration, that's more likely to cause you to be hypochloremic. So just to kind of, I guess, come full circle, because I know a lot of people hinge on saline IVs as helping. So, and this is just to clarify this. So overdrinking hypodatremic beverages also lowers chloride. Right. How is that different than the saline IVs increasing chloride? I'm not following you. So I guess like when we said like people would get IVs, their chloride would actually increase. Right. The, I guess what mechanism is different with the over drinking that makes chloride go down? Well, it's just too much fluid. Okay. Just too much hypotonic fluid. We were having them drink water, but, but you know, any kind of hypotonic, you know, sport drink would do the same thing, right? Because people, different people have done those, done that studies, yeah. but it was simply the overhydration, the overhydration. We were looking specifically at if you drink to a predetermined schedule. So yeah. we had people drink to a predetermined schedule. Um, everybody drank the same amount, which was our premise was you're going to make the women, you know, hyponatremic faster and, and, and to a greater extent than you're going to make the men, which we did. Mm -hmm. But everybody went down significantly and it was significantly different than the drink of thirst. But one of the keys that I have been saying over the years is one of the key signs and symptoms you see in people who overdrink are muscle cramps. So you know, that once again gets to an electrolyte imbalance and you're more likely to cause that hypochloremia if you overdrink. And I think that's that's the point I was just trying to get back to is it's like with, you know, a physician doing IVs, there's a fixed amount of saline right. going into the system. So it probably gets you back to homeo, homeostasis. Um, and then for those that overdrink, they would say go beyond what that physician is doing with the IV. And now you reach almost like the other side of that bell curve. That's right. Going down. 
Right. Well, we, yeah. And in that case, like if you have people who are really overhydrated, you need as, as an athletic trainer, you need to treat that with hypertonic. So we were giving them a bouillon, right? So very concentrated chicken bouillon in order to make them uh, get better. I mean, the treatment from a physician standpoint is a, a 10 cc bolus of, of hypertonic saline, um, which we're not allowed to, you know, we can't give, but, um, um, getting back to the, the other thing I want to mention about the, the IVs is, um, if you're giving IVs for um, trying to um, trying to treat muscle cramps, make sure make sure that it's full saline and not half saline. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the things we have changed over the years in treating um, the football players who are cramping. The the old kind of um, thought process from years ago was to give um, a liter of full saline and then a second liter of half saline and um, and dextrose or lactated ringers. Um, but we stopped doing that because we want to make sure that there's enough sodium in it, right? Yeah. And I really want to drive that point home because I'm very well aware, I think we all are that now, and this is a good thing, that that's now becoming part of an AT scope of practice over the next couple of years. And so that it's not just, oh, I just throw a line, right. hydrated. It's in addition to universal precautions, infection and entering a vein, that intervention still has to be well thought out beyond just I'm hydrating somebody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to add that to the conversation, because yeah. there's a, there's a large number of us that were, I was taught that via my, my research and my training there, but the standard AT even of my experience at older has not been taught that unless they were in settings where it was dictated. So, right. And, and to go further, Mike, you're right. Absolutely right about the, the athletic trainers, but a lot of the physicians don't know that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, kind of, you know, we work for physicians and we kind of think that they're all up on this kind of information and, and they, they aren't, right? So even the internal medicine guys, um, you know, unless they're in tune with hypertremia and these kinds of issues, um, they they may not be thinking along those lines. Correct. Correct. All right. I got two things. Um, one, Ryan wants posted a link from livestrong.com uh, about how to freeze a gator how to freeze a gatorade into a slushy so i'm going to put that link in the show notes so that we can have that but if you're uh, watching live on the facebook you can go through the comments there and ryan's posted that so hopefully you can make your gatorade slushy as kind of as we've discussed here and then um last week um owen Eisminger, uh asked about the recommended water break timing so like at football practice you know that they'll build in all right every we usually at our school we do five minute periods so they'll say okay every fourth period is a water break type thing and i know that you you and dr miller both recommended free access to water uh, but is do you have a recommended programming for water breaks or is it just have the water there and they drink whenever they want i will always champion freely available and not scheduled water breaks because right. If we're going to go drink to thirst to prevent a large number of issues, not just hydration specifically, it has to be freely available because there are cases that have happened that even if it's every four periods, that extra period, maybe they needed to get to it in the third and that could have avoided a medical emergency. We don't know that for certain, but we need to avoid that conversation ever having to take place. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my thought is always that, like same thing just if you have cold cold water they will drink typically drink cold water you know more than warm water and that also may help in in cooling a little bit um my overall feeling is what keeps your players on the field is um the break 
you know, taking the break, taking helmets off of the football players and allowing them to cool down a little bit is probably more important than the actual fluid. And if they're not thirsty, you know, they, they really don't need to drink. So the other thing, too, is if you have a schedule break, everybody thinks they have to drink. You know, there's a lot of times in football practice where they don't really have, they don't have to drink. Right. It's not the fluid they need. It's really the break that they need. So in that case, a schedule break for the break itself is probably helpful. You know, not necessarily a water break. And, I, and I'm, I think we're very well aware. I know that that requires a culture shift in some football settings because right. I know and this is this is not right, but I know it exists that athletes are considered weak if they drink water. They drink right. too much water. They're not in shape. So that's a conversation I believe you, all athletic trainers in that situation have to have with their football coach because it's not just based on our feelings or people being called soft because they need water. It's a very sound medical argument that is now honestly supported in court by position statements right? Um, to drive that free access and not have scheduled water breaks. Right, right. All right, well, that's all the questions, comments I have. Um, there was, uh, Alyssa Brown had mentioned the thermoregulation in cramps, which you guys covered that plenty with the slushies and the lowering the body temperature or any of the having to cool yourself down fatigues you, which, uh, a, a, you know, adds to the cramping factor. Um, so you guys, I feel, I feel like you guys covered that pretty well there. So, um, Dr. Folks, you were kind of talking about your research and then, you know, and Mike would mentioned you, some of the people you were in, do you feel like you got to adequate, adequately discuss what you were doing there in your 18 month study? I, I think so. I mean, I, um, Part of it's going to be presented. Part of it was presented last year at NATA, and part of it's going to be presented this year um, in NATA as well. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's, it, it is a really it is a really good study. I mean, it's it's one of the best ones I think we've done in the lab. That's really shown huge. It actually very much supports the the newest NATA fluid replacement uh, paper. It kind of you know disputes some of those you know, scheduled drinking, which is what it was about, right, from the old paper, but it but it very much supports the idea of drinking to thirst. If you don't know sweat rates and things like that, the drinking to thirst is, is the way to go. Yeah, it's really funny. It took away a talking point from some of my presentations because I used to harp on our position statement was from 2000, <laughs> so I can't do that anymore, so I have you to... can't do that anymore. Now it includes all the research I've had in my presentation, so it's yeah. like, read the position statement, please, if you're following along. It's very, very good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't have any further questions, Jeremy. If anybody pops in, or I, I think I think I'm We're good. good. On yep. Yeah. All right. So um, as they were just talking about NATA, if you can't go to NATA, then you can check out MedBridge and use VSMB as your promo code, and that'll be a great way to save some money and get your CEUs there. Of course, NATA will be great, and I might even try and get Mike to sneak in and live stream Dr. Folk's presentation because I know he'll be super excited, <laughs> but we can't tell anybody, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> totally not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, Dr. Folk, somebody wants to get a hold of you? Probably my Westchester email. Um, so S-F-O-W-K-E-S-G-O-D-E-K. It's the two last names at wcupa.edu. So it's Westchester University of Pennsylvania, wcupa.edu. And again, I'll have that there in the show notes, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science research. Mike McKinney, email, same thing, again, M-C-K-E-N-N-E-Y at northeastern.edu, right? Yep, and then I also say, I, you, can, you can chat to me on Twitter, too. Like I'm, I'm still on Twitter at, at McKinney, A-T-C. 
So. Yeah, and I follow. So did I say .edu or .com? Mine's .edu as well. I don't know, Joey, what I said. WCUPA.edu. There you right? go. .edu. Okay. Both and of them you can, .edu. If you Google the Heat Institute, it'll take you to Westchester, and you can always find me there too. Yeah, like I said with the last one, if you just doctor or Dr. Sandra Folks, Dr. Sandra Folks Godek, or like you said, Heat Institute, any of those are going to point you right to one of the ways to contact her. Uh, easy, easy to find contact information on. Right. So. There's not very many Folks Godek people out there, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some of my partners, Frio Hydration. Um, they may be even, even help you out with the, with the Celestia station there. I don't know, but, uh, we kind of mentioned the right stuff or leveling as, as possible abilities for using, making your, your slushies. Uh, Dragonfly Max is going to be hosting the NATA podcast lounge, Myotech, um, hoist hydration. That's something I really like for, uh, the, the isotonic drink. So I know we talked about hyper and hypo, but this is an isotonic drink that I, I like to do, to use there. So this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science research. Dr. Sandra Folks Godek, again, lots of knowledge, and I'm sure we could continue going on for a while, lots of different topics. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person in, at, uh, in Las Vegas. And then my friend Mike McKinney, always uh, helpful and just kind of pushing the sports medicine broadcast forward. We've already got some stuff planned for next year where we're going to be talking about um, how strength and conditioning can really help athletic trainers. And so, um, again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science research. Again, for Sandy, Mike, and Jeremy, that is a wrap. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.